Let's leap into the elements of architecture. It's time for Architecture Coffee and Ink. Hello, this is Hollywood C, and you're listening to Architecture Coffee and Ink a podcast dedicated to introducing concepts, detailing out designs, and tackling the architecture you might not realize the meaning behind. I'm your hostess, and I'm here today to start introducing you to the designs that make you wonder why. So I ask you to brew your coffee, grab your sketchbook and pen, and let's begin. Hello everyone, and welcome to my eerie arc. I hope that anyone else who celebrates Mardi Gras had a wonderful time. As I mentioned in the first episode of the new season, I will be releasing a tale of spooky architecture or landscape once a month, a kind of series within the podcast, as some of you really like the supernatural and murder aspect, and others don't. This way, if spooky is not for you, you can just skip an episode without skipping content for the week. Normally, these episodes will be coming out on the last Thursday of the month, but as I mentioned previously, this was last of the weirdly timed episode. But to get serious for a moment, I wanted to again ask everyone to send up good karma, positive vibes, prayers, or good thoughts for those who have been affected by several disasters and wars, especially those in New Zealand, Turkey, Syria, Brazil, California, Greece, and the Ukraine. I will once again be posting links to the disaster relief efforts, and if you are capable of offering support, I encourage you to check them out. But as always, make sure to also check within your local communities to see if there are efforts being made that you can help with. If anyone has an organization or a campaign to spotlight, please send them and I can create a separate post on the blog to list all those efforts. But most importantly, to any of my designers, dreamers, and everyone in between in those communities being affected, please know that the ACNI community is here standing in support of you. Before we begin, as always, make sure to check your sources, check your facts, and most importantly, check me. As always, this podcast is dedicated to respecting all of the cultures and people we discuss on the show. If I make a pronunciation mistake, I am extremely sorry. No disrespect is intended. Our usual quick trigger warning for this episode in my entire eerie art. This is scary stories and upsetting situations. As such, people's death and the paranormal will be discussed. If this bothers you or triggers you in any way, please see my normal episodes where it's just architecture. While I won't go into graphic details at any point because this is a design podcast, I want to make sure that everyone is comfortable and has an enjoyable time. Today, we are talking about Lepp Castle. The castle has a fascinating and deep-rooted history strongly connected to the land it was built on. Of course, the history also has several spooky moments, and while that will take up a chunk of the episode, this wouldn't be a design podcast if I didn't talk about the castle itself. So to give the episode a bit of structure, we are going to dive into the geography, detour into the architecture, and then finish on the haunting tales and daunting creatures that call the castle home. Starting first with a bit of geography, it is located in County Offaly or Cunde Uvali, Ireland. The county is located in the heart of Ireland and is an extremely rich area and contains several notable geographical features, including everything from the Shea of 
blue mountains, to several infamous bogs, but overall, the landscape remains flat. Part of the county is in the River Shannon floodplain. It also owns part of the Grand Canal, which connects Dublin to the Shannon Harbour, in the west part of the county, connecting to the River Shannon. Just to explain a bit behind the canal, the Grand Canal began construction in 1756 and was completed in 1804 and currently sports a series of greenways along its length, although several of the original branches of the canal itself were abandoned. Overall, it operated as a way for barges and goods to be moved across the country and eventually reach either Galway or Limerick. The climate of Ireland is considered to be a temperate marine time climate, which means that the country's proximity to the water and the Gulf Stream causes the weather to remain fairly mild overall. Of course, the rich green and vibrant landscape is due to the amount of precipitation the country receives. As a whole, the country is absolutely gorgeous, but I personally think the weather has a life of its own. The one time I visited, I didn't have so much as a cloudy sky until we went to the Cliffs of Moher, when it was pouring rain and was so foggy, visibility was probably somewhere around 3 meters. The Cliffs of Moher, for those of you who haven't heard of them, are some extremely famous sea cliffs, which from photos look gorgeous. Not that I would know, as I could have literally been standing and staring back into the parking lot in the wrong direction by mistake and genuinely wouldn't have been able to tell the difference. Focusing on the castle itself and the actual topic of the episode, the primary architecture is a stone castle that currently extends up three stories. It originally started as a modified watchtower, which still remains the central focal point of the home from the exterior. There are several renderings of the castle on the main website, which are from, I believe, SketchUp, though I'm not entirely sure of the program. In these, they show what the tower was likely to have looked like originally. Over time, new additions were slowly included, such as the wings, which were in the Gothic style. By the end of the renovations, I noticed that several sources switched to considering the castle as more of a fortified home. After additional research, I can understand why. A watchtower operated exactly as the name suggested, a tower or elevated structure intended to provide a safe location for someone to watch the surrounding area and look for dangers. However, I do want to point out that while watchtowers are often associated with militaries and militias, that wasn't the only group to utilize them. In this case, it was built with strategy in mind as a way to control the past of the Sleeve Blue Mountain. While the mountains are highly important ecologically, they are also important as a thoroughfare. The original watchtower was a square fortress, however, it is now a three-story home, one that boasts some of the original 16th century doorways and stonework. Over the years, new additions have been added onto the house, such as the priest house, in 1571 and a later expansion of the tower itself in 1753. The National Inventory of Architectural Heritage of Ireland details that the additions by the Darby family include a swift transition to the Neo-Gothic, who we will be speaking a little bit about later on. The castle includes a mixture of sandstone and limestone. Other additions would see Jacobian and Georgian styles being added, with dashes of Gothic revival being scattered throughout. However, a few Two notable additions were added to the castle's security, including a matriculation, which is a hole or opening above the gates, parapets, or entrance to the castle where they were able to pour boiling liquid, throw stones, or shoot projectiles down onto invading forces. Another security feature added on and expanded upon was the bartizans. The bartizans are turrets at the top of the castle that allow for those watching to remain both protected and able to attack from above. These are what one student of mine once called mini corner towers. Maybe not exactly right, because this feature is not limited to the corners of buildings, 
but extremely memorable. Another interesting feature is that due to the additions to the home over time, there's actually a mixture of stones and blocks used in construction. This includes sandstone and limestone. Looking at even just the photographs of the castle, you can still see the incredible stonework and the incredibly intricate details. But let's move on to the history and the myths. Starting with the land itself, reportedly, some evidence has been found to indicate that the area was occupied prior to the construction of the castle. Some sources reference as early as the Neolithic Age or New Stone Age. I noticed when researching that some of the sources seemed to indicate that the site might have been accompanied by druids, and that there was even another structure underneath. Given that the castle is considered to be a contender for the title of the quote, most haunted castle in Ireland. This has led to many rumors. One of the rumors stated this area being once the stronghold of dark magic. As an aside, I do want to take this moment to remind everyone that Druids were religious leaders who focused primarily on holistic medicine, nature, prophecy, ritual, and philosophy, or at least we think. Quite literally, all information about them is from secondhand sources as they did not keep written records. So rumors around this Celtic social class widely varied and as a result, rumors of the practices associated with the land varied from everything to ritual sacrifice to healing. And while ancient Roman dictator Julius Caesar may have claimed that Druids regularly tossed scores of people into wicker statues and lit it on fire, I would strongly encourage everyone to keep his track record of propaganda and smear campaigns in mind. And likewise, I would encourage everyone to consider the sources when deciding how the land may have been used. Moving on to the castle, it was originally named Lamb O'Bannon or the Lep of the O'Bannons. The main website for the castle states that it would have been built in the early 1500s, most likely around 1514. However, I did notice when researching that several sources used a conflicting date of construction listed as 1250. However, with this earlier date, I noticed that many of the sources seemed to reference each other and I couldn't get a clear understanding of why there was this 200 year discrepancy. To solve this dilemma and to get a clear understanding of the history of the castle, I tried to research a bit on the genealogy of the O'Bannon family to see if I could figure it out through a roundabout way. However, while there were a few printed books that might have helped at least explain the mystery, they don't have an online version or they're no longer in print. So instead, let's focus on the history that we do know about. As the name might suggest, the O'Bannon clan built the castle. However, is underneath the rule of the O'Carroll clan. A clan is a Gaelic word that means family. Structurally, clans would have been a line or a group of several families that would have been related in some fashion. Most often sharing the same surname, the men would elect a single leader, a chief or a kinsman. For those who aren't familiar with how inter-clan relationships would have worked, basically you would have a ruling family and then other families would swear loyalty and manage an area underneath the ruling clan's name. However, the power of this secondary family would only last as long as they were in good standing with the ruling clan. The ruling clan technically owned everything, even the possessions of the clans underneath them, at least in theory. In actuality, this would sometimes lead to fights and skirmishes. Once the chief was elected, who was often the biggest, toughest, and most powerful men in the clan, all wealth was redistributed, and in exchange for protection and prosperity, all of the men were required to fight if needed. And I am saying man and men because that is traditionally who was allowed to fight, rule, vote, etc. And this tradition is not specific to 
Ireland alone. My definition is very, very vague and very broad. There have been several societies globally that followed this or a similar structure. The castle's name actually comes from a legend. According to the story, two brothers of the O'Bannon clan were going to build the castle together as a stronghold. However, they quickly fell into a disagreement about which of them would rule. And so they came to the idea that they would both leap from the rocks on which they would build and whoever survived would take over as chief of the clan. One brother passed away during this competition and the other led the construction of the original tower. Regardless of the legend, the O'Bannons maintained possession of the tower until the family came under siege. Several attempts were made over the years, the most famous first few unsuccessfully, and then later on there were several more successful attempts to seize the castle. One of these resulted in the destruction and consequential rebuild of the castle. Eventually, this turbulent history resulted in the O'Carroll stepping in and taking more direct control by moving into the castle and using it full time. Despite their efforts, the O'Carrolls didn't bring peace to the castle. Rumored to have a strong thirst for power and no fear of spilling blood, there was killing in and out of the clan as various members sought control. In the O'Carrolls' time, it started with the first Prince of Eli, John, who was a victim of plague. He was then succeeded by his son, Mulroney, who seemed to have a peaceful rule. After him, however, began a series of murders, suspiciously convenient death, which dramatically altered how the natural line of secession would have occurred. Instead of going through each one individually, I will highlight a couple of the more famous and discuss the spirits that came from each one. In the first, two sons of the O'Carroll clan were once again locked in a power struggle for who would rule. One was a priest and was in the chapel located on the upper levels of the castle. There, he started mass without his brother being present, which is considered an incredibly great insult. His brother, upon finding this out, flew into a complete and uncontrollable rage, so much so that he apparently stormed into the chapel and murdered his brother on the very altar he was giving mass from. This traumatic death so tainted the chapel that the priest is believed to be stuck, haunting the room and area he gave his last mass from. Another bloody mark in the castle's history occurred when the reigning heir enlisted the services of men, and when the time came to pay their wages, he would instead murder them while they slept in the very bed he provided for them. In another case, he apparently enlisted the services of the McMahon clan to train him and several of his men. In thanks, he threw a feast that was apparently to die for, or rather, at least they all did, after he poisoned the food instead of paying them. Eventually, those around him grew so frustrated with his bad habits and fearful that they would be next that he was eventually murdered in 1600. Another famous goat is known as the Red Lady or the Woman in Red, a woman who is stuck for all eternity carrying the dagger that killed her, arms always poised to plunge the dagger into anyone who dares to venture too close. It is believed that she was captured by the O'Carrolls. During her imprisonment, she gave birth to a child who was murdered alongside the Red Lady. And now, the Red lady roams the halls, daring another of the O'Carrolls to show their face. She causes the whole room to darken and chill, slowly filling it with her terrifying presence, or lunges out at you from the dark. However, she is also said to stay at the side of children or nurseries in the castle, weeping and guarding them, still longing for her lost child. This was the last of the incidents 
related to the O'Carrolls. The Darby family took over the castle in 1649, though how and exactly who it was in the family seems to vary. One report stated that the Darby's actually married into the O'Carrolls family. The person who took over the house was either Jonathan or John Darby. I know that those names sound familiar, but people are actually referring to two very different people. Some sources say that it was given to whichever Darby around 1649, and he was actually given it for his service underneath Oliver Cromwell, while another source says that it was for loyalty to King Charles I. Cromwell was the opponent of King Charles I and advocated for his execution in England. Cromwell would later lead an extremely prejudiced and bloody campaign against Ireland. Another story is that a daughter of the O'Carroll, who was named in one article as Finola O'Carroll, fell in love with an English soldier. In this story, it specifically lists the names as Jonathan Darby. Set among the backdrop of the turmoil between England and Ireland, the two young lovers meet as he came to Ireland during the campaign on the English side, with her family remaining firmly supportive of their home country of Ireland. Meeting in secret, they planned to run away as her family didn't approve. However, during their escape, they ran into her brother, who began to attack them both. Jonathan, defending himself and his love, shoved the brother in self-defense. The brother was standing upon the stairs and fell to his death, and the lovers were able to wed. The castle went then to her and her husband as she inherited the home upon her brother's death. Another belief is that the young soldier, backed by the invading army, took control of the house and in an effort to avoid a conflicting claim, decided to take one of the daughters as his war bride. Regardless of which history is correct, after this generation, the history goes quiet a bit, with several generations living peacefully until a couple named Jonathan and Mildred Darby inherited the castle. Jonathan and Mildred were and continue to be monumental to the way we perceive the castle today. They are the reason the idea of the paranormal first became associated with the castle. Prior to this, the ghosts not publicly discussed, but the new owners really focused on the paranormal, holding seances and hunts. Mildred was an author who used the pen name Andrew Mary. She wrote primarily gothic horror. While she was born in England, her marriage to Jonathan Darby and subsequent move to Ireland kicked off a supreme interest in both the paranormal and the oppression of the Irish underneath the English rule. She wrote a series of books that you can still read, which was described by an article on the University of Tulsa's website as being, quote, very masculine and very gothic. Underneath her moniker, Andrew Mary, she successfully passed herself off as a male writer for years, and it is believed that her success was in no small part due to this deception. Many of her articles and writings were based off the hauntings she experienced at Leap Castle as a full-time resident. Unfortunately, her husband eventually discovered her pen name and made her quit publishing after her most important work, The Hunger, which documented the famine and the harsh treatment of the Irish. While the couple was living in the castle, they supposedly discovered an oubliette. An oubliette is a secret dungeon or forgotten dungeon. Coming from the French word for forget, the purpose of the oubliette is to have a place to forget your prisoners. And apparently it worked so well that when it was finally discovered, three carts worth of bones were hauled away. The claims of the Darby family were that the bones were from the victims of the O'Carrolls and that the oubliette had long since been buried before the Darbys had taken possession of the castle, leading the Darby's family name to be unfairly tainted by being associated with crime. However, the biggest argument against this claim of innocence was a watch that was found among the bones. This watch would have been from the time period when the castle was occupied by the Darby clan. And here's where it gets a bit trickier, is that 
all of this is assuming the bones ever existed and that this whole affair wasn't just another fictional story by Mildred. Later that year in 1922, the castle was also then a target of the IRA. The IRA is the Irish Republican Army which lasted from 1922 through 1969 when it split. The castle was an early victim of the Irish Civil War which resulted in the castle being bombed and the animals being slaughtered and hung as a warning. Among the countless artifacts to have been lost during the resulting fire from the bombing was several drawers worth of Mildred's unpublished works that she had been secreting away. After fleeing the army in 1922, the Darbys never returned permanently, and this caused the castle to become abandoned until it was finally acquired by Peter Bartlett. Bartlett worked for a while on the castle, but passed away before seeing his ancestral home restored, as he was actually descended from the O'Bannons. It was then bought by its current owner, Sean Ryan, where the castle continues to this day to be a private residence. Mr. Ryan is quite famous in his own right, as he has been on countless TV shows and YouTube specials talking about the property. While some private tours are allowed when arranged in advance, overall the best way to experience the castle is through the various specials and discussions that Mr. Ryan has allowed to be filmed in the home. And now for the big finale. The final thing I want to talk about is arguably the most famous aspect of the castle, and that is the creature that calls the castle home the elemental. An elemental is a creature that often appears as a half-human entity, but is distinctly non-human in origin. The name comes from the fact that most elementals are primarily composed of one of the elements. Elementals have been considered both ill omens and protectors, depending upon the situation. This particular one has been extremely well documented over the years, as far back as the origins of the castle. Mildred Darby describes seeing this creature in one of her publications, and I'm actually going to read to you an excerpt directly from her writing, quote, human in shape and a little shorter than I am. I could just make out the shape of the big black holes like great eyes and sharp features but the whole figure head face hands and all was gray unclean bluish gray and something of the color and appearance of common cotton wool but oh so sinister repulsive and devilish my friends who are clever about occult things say that it is what they call an elemental the thing was about the size of a sheep thin gaunt and shadowy in part its face was human or to be more accurate inhuman in its vileness with large holes of blackness for eyes loose slobbery lips and a thick saliva dripping jaw sloping back suddenly into its neck nose it had none only spreading cancerous cavities the whole face being a uniform tint of gray this too was the color of the dark coarse hair covering its head neck and body its forearms were thickly coated with the same hair so were its paws large loose and heavy in hand shape and it sat on its hind leg one hand or paw was raised and claw-like fingers was extended ready to scratch the paint its lusterless eyes which seemed half decomposed looked incredibly foul staring into mine and the horrible smell which had before offended my nostrils only a hundred times intensified came up to my face filling me with a deadly nausea i noticed the lower half of the creature was indefinite and seemed semi-transparent at least so I could see from the framework of the door that led into the gallery through its body. Mildred Darby, Kilman Castle, the House of Horrors. Stories have popped up of this elemental haunting the grounds long before the castle existed, as potentially the druids may have used the creature to protect the nearby sacred spaces. Another belief is that Mildred accidentally awoke the creature due to her discovery of the bones, 
and the holding of the seances. Some people now wonder if it's not a creature at all, but rather another spirit trapped in the house who perhaps suffered from leprosy, who was then victimized further after death. Another and the most popular idea goes back to an earlier part of the episode. Earlier in the episode, I deliberately skipped over part of the earlier history. I mentioned how the castle was famously sieged several times before it was lost by the O'Bannons and then claimed by the O'Carroll. This first failed siege was by the Earl of Kader. During his siege, he was able to damage the castle physically after the second attempt, but it is believed that he left a much dark paint on the grounds than the rubble of the castle wall. His initial attack was in 1513, and his second was a few short years later. But was this continued failure enough to cause him to seek out another way to continue his fight? The information of his attack was part of the Annals of the Four Masters, which was written in the 1630s by Quill and Ink. The Annals of the Four Masters was written by, by Michael O'Claren, with help from three others. It documents everything from the floods to when the book was written as a comprehensive history of Ireland. It is a complete, clear history with all battles, sieges, and plagues included and used several sources that no longer exist. In the two translations I read, the phrase Earl of Kader was used 40 times for multiple generations, and I'm like 90% sure I only skimmed through an extremely small amount of the whole text. I want to make this clear. I completely understand where the next bit of confusion lies, because I managed to confuse myself. Several of the sources said that the Earl of Kader was Gerald Fitzgerald. In the annals, it is said that the father, or Gerald, senior, attempted one, failed, went home, died of plague or illness, and then the son Gerald Jr. tried. Some versions translate the name as Garrett, which some sources say was a nickname for Garrett the Great. Of course, what history I've been alluding to is the idea that Gerald Fitzgerald cursed the land in a fit of pike, and when he cursed the, this land, he brought forward a creature so terrifying, it'll paralyze you where you stand. But only if you provoke it. The thing is, there was a wizard earl, a student and a practitioner of alchemy and the occult, who studied and mastered arts and magics that this creature would have been right at home with, if it was an evil creature bent on carrying out revenge. The problem is, the wizard earl was born in 1525 and was Gerald Fitzgerald's son, Gerald Fitzgerald, and all versions of the story that I have found clearly state that based on the known sightings, the castle had to have been cursed by the father. Now, whether the wizard was influenced to seek out and hone his craft by his father, I don't know. But he comes with his own myths that seem to have some interesting parallel. The wizard Earl traveled extensively, exploring exotic locations, discovering dark gifts and abilities, and meeting new teachers and cultures. Eventually, he ended up trying to settle down, and when he married, he decided to separate his wizardly aspects and his, hide his abilities from his new bride. Dazzled by the idea of magic, however, she begged him to show her what skills he was capable of, and after much begging and pleading, he eventually relented and agreed to tell her everything. However, he was extremely concerned about her fearing and rejecting him, so they crafted deal. If she would remain strong fast and show no fear through three tests, she could learn more. But if she failed, she would never lay eyes on her husband again. She agreed and he undertook 
three tests. In the first two, she passed. He brought forward the dead and she didn't flinch. He called forward the river and brought in enough water to drown her in their home and she didn't flinch. And then in the final test, he conjured a creature that climbed her and at first she didn't flinch. But then he changed himself, transforming himself into a monster with barely half his humanity left and replaced with the element. At first she didn't flinch, but then a pet cat startled her and she fainted. Never again did she see her husband, despite how steadfast and true she attempted to be. It is said that the wizard, capable of changing himself, lies in sleep in another castle in the country. But who's to say that his spirit doesn't still wander like he once did when he was first studying the dark arts? Thank you again for joining me today. I have another interview episode lined up that'll be coming out soon, as well as we also have an episode on the High Line and New York City coming out. Please remember to check out the blog as always for the transcript, show notes and sources and additional exclusive information that I don't have time to talk about on the show. This episode is going to have a lot more show notes than my usual blog posts. So make sure you go check out the Facebook page and Insta for updates on when that will all be released because it takes quite a while to get it all typed up. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts from. Share it, give it out to all your friends, anybody who you think might need a little bit of architecture coffee and ink in their life. You can find me on Insta at architecture coffee and ink or hit up my regular Insta if you really like iPhone photography. Email the show at architecture coffee and ink at gmail.com or the blog at architecture coffee and ink.com. Don't worry, there's no quiz. I can't include all of that information in the show notes and I'm not expecting you to memorize it. Architecture coffee and ink is a Hollywood C Studios LLC production. I'm excited to meet with all my designers, dreamers, and DIY enthusiasts next time. But in the meantime, may your coffee mugs be full and your inkwells never run dry. <laughs>